Hey, everyone, and welcome to The Leading Edge, produced by me, Chris Sands, and with the help of a very powerful legal and tech community, TechGC. TechGC is a mentorship, education, and innovation hub for legal and tech professionals with really great exclusive benefits for TechGC members, but also great public resources to subscribe to, such as our newsletters, in-house lawyer, career center, social media, and of course, this podcast. All subscription info in the show notes. So today I'm going to start episode one of a cybersecurity and privacy series. My belief is that cybersecurity and privacy are intertwined and will be a major undercurrent of public discussion for the foreseeable future. Due to the importance of this issue, my focus is to facilitate and share timely, concise, and informative discussions on the topic. I'm joined in today's episode with Allison Bender. Allison is currently an attorney at law firm Wilson Sonsini in the cybersecurity and privacy practice. Prior to joining Wilson, she served at the Department of Homeland Security, serving as a senior cybersecurity attorney in the Office of the General Counsel. Allison is also an adjunct professor at the Georgetown University Law Center, noted public speaker at conferences such as Black Hat and International Association of Privacy Professionals, and is also named one of the women in cybersecurity to follow on Twitter by Cybercrime Magazine. In our conversation, Alice and I take a bit of a journey through the beginning of internet regulation into today's world of regulation and also the threats of cybersecurity. We talk about the origin of internet regulation introduced in the 80s, the rules that helped enable the tech boom of the 90s, the cybersecurity legal framework developed in the early 2000s, and the current state of cybersecurity threats, as well as protective tactics for tech companies to implement within their business. Allison is a total pro on the topic, so it was a great pleasure to get her thoughtful contribution. So with that, let's tune into my convo with Allison Bender. Allison, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here, Chris. So I think it'll be fun and useful to walk through the evolution of the internet through a regulatory and cybersecurity lens. After all, we can link the beginning of regulating the internet with concerns over cyber attacks, hacking, fraud. I feel like many forget, especially those in the millennial and Gen Z camp, about how young the internet actually is. I mean, a few decades is not very long for something so influential, so pervasive like the internet. So drawing the correlations between the evolution of laws combined with the evolving structure of the web, I think can not only help us understand about the importance of cybersecurity now within business, national security, etc., but also help us view the future outlook on the next evolution of the internet. So let's start with the beginning of internet regulation and we can work our way towards where we are today. So one of the most interesting stories I think about kind of the dawn of cybersecurity actually is from the 80s. And it's really about the origin of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Back when Ronald Reagan was president, the movie War Games came out and Matthew Broderick was basically this high tech whiz teenager who, you know, first he hacked and changed his grades. And then unwittingly, he hacked NORAD, which of course is responsible for our strategic missile defense from a nuclear perspective. And the classic line from the computer is, would you like to play a game? And Matthew Broderick's character clicks on global thermonuclear war. And Ronald Reagan saw this movie like the day after it came out. He saw it at Camp David. And he was back in meetings preparing for negotiations with the Russians about nuclear weapons. And he's asking his generals and his staffers, have you seen this movie? And nobody had seen it. And so President 
Reagan explained the plot of the movie and then turns to his joint chief of staff at the time was General Vesey and was like, could something like this actually happen? And the general said, let me look into this and comes back a week later, says to the White House, it's worse than you think. And this movie actually ended up being played like a four minute clip before Congress to address this problem of how do we defend our networks, which are now so critical for national security purposes. But as the Internet has evolved and e-commerce has exploded, really are critical to how we live our lives on a day to day basis and are critical to the fabric of modern business as we know it. That's the origin of the Computer Fraud Abuse Act. That's really the origin, I would say, of, of cybersecurity and a real commitment from the U.S. government to start defending networks. Amazing. And so the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act was propelled into being from this sort of science fiction, apocalyptic panic. And so we're talking about regulating a global system through U.S. policy, which to me sounds sort of unprecedented, not to mention incredibly challenging. What were the core aims of the legislation and how was this domestic policy viewed from a global perspective? So back in 1984, when it was originally passed, it was called the Counterfeit Access Device and Computer Fraud Abuse Act. It's the predecessor to what we know as the modern Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. But basically, it's what made hacking illegal. You shouldn't be able to go in and change your high school grades. You shouldn't be able to play with NORAD's computer system on launching nuclear missiles. And so what you can do on the Internet really changes changed at that moment. The internet was originally designed to be open and transparent and to promote the free flow of information. And that kind of original underlying philosophy is still how computers communicate today. They send a hello command and says, you know, what they are and what they're running and they ask for data and devices and systems are programmed to respond. And when you start using that for nefarious purposes, that's really what this act and subsequent legislation was intended to protect. If something is valuable, you need to protect it and bad uses should be illegal. And that was what this was intended to do. I think the U.S. perspective and that of most Western democracies is that it's good to have this kind of free flow of information. In a lot of ways, it seems a little bit like the issue from 16, 17, 1800s regarding freedom to navigate the seas. We don't question now that you can have shipping across the Pacific or across the Atlantic. Shouldn't you also be able to have the free flow of data across borders? Right. So the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act was enacted in the 80s. And so as we move into the 90s, we see the Communications Decency Act, which turned out to be incredibly influential in the 90s boom of tech companies. Can you go into detail on why that particular legislation was so important to the growth of the Internet? So the internet has a lot of positives, but also some negatives. And if you're thinking about launching an online platform and you're worried about what your users might do, child porn, hate speech, things like that, the Communications Decency Act Section 230 provided protection for those platforms from lawsuits, essentially, with very limited exceptions. And that created enough space where it was financially viable to launch these types of platforms and online communities without being worried about basically being dead on arrival because of the lawsuit and from the tiniest amount of user content. There still are a lot of strings attached, but it opened the door to allowing the internet to become what it is today. My friend and colleague, Jeff Kossoff, who's a professor at the Naval Academy, actually uh, published a book on this called The 26 Words That Created the Internet. Um, the whole premise of this book is that without viability for 
protection, we wouldn't have seen the explosion of companies like AOL and Yahoo and other types of commerce and then social media companies that really made the internet part of our day-to-day life. The explosion of those types of sites from dial-up and on really in many ways was enabled through that kind of liability protection. Right. Okay. So we have this liability protection that enabled much of this major tech boom in the 90s. And then at the end of the 90s, we experience a bust. And then in the early 2000s, we see the rise of who are now the sort of tech bohemists, the Amazon, Facebook, Google, Twitter, who are able to leverage data in a much more sophisticated fashion to collect, crunch, use data for a competitive advantage to know their users more intimately. And so this must have changed the cybersecurity regulatory landscape, right? Because I imagine there would be much more cyber breaches just with this collection of so much data. Yeah, exactly. And from the data breach side of things, we start to see the FTC flex its muscle on cybersecurity practices. We had also a number of private litigation cases, Heartland, Yahoo, Target, Wyndham. Similarly, we also had the rise of state data breach notification laws with California being the first and most other states quickly following suit. It took us a while to get to all 50, but the combination of federal enforcement, state enforcement, private litigation, I think woke companies up to the fact that if they had certain types of data, they needed to protect it and that there were ways of managing that data that would be considered reasonable. I think people recognize now you have to have a firewall. When in doubt, change your password. Encryption is a good thing. These may seem like really basic cyber hygiene points for a lot of the tech community. But for a while, there was a question about whether you really needed to encrypt certain types of data. And I think think those days are long past. We're seeing a lot more focus on cybersecurity now just because of the significant regulatory enforcement fines and also litigation. And that wouldn't have been possible without the legal framework that was laid in the early 2000s and mid 2000s. Got it. And in our current period, we've seen some pretty landmark breaches. I mean, the Facebook Cambridge Analytica breach in particular, I think was so monumental because it wasn't simply a leak of personal data. It was also an awareness, a new awareness of what data was being used for. In this case, it was a new indication that there was sort of a social engineering happening, whether it be to steer people to buy certain things or steer people towards political biases. I think that this social engineering component is particularly something useful to think about because when we look at the internet culture of misinformation, deep fakes, and so on, we see many companies vulnerable to hackers who are using social engineering techniques to go after tech companies. Could you walk us through some of those hacking techniques that are on the rise and also what are the basic things companies should be doing to mitigate these risks? So in almost every hack, there's more than one thing that goes wrong. If you look at 2013 versus 2017, 2018, 2019, things have evolved considerably, but hacks don't occur because you have Fort Knox like cybersecurity. There are multiple gaps. There are opportunities to have corrected them. Probably 85% of breaches could be prevented through really basic cyber hygiene steps. And it's not like companies are getting hacked every day by a nation state using a zero-day exploit. 
exploit. Back in 2018, one of the directors from the NSA announced at a conference that in the last 24 months, 93% of the breaches or incidents that NSA had had could have been prevented entirely through basic cyber hygiene, and that they had not had a single zero-day attempt in the last 12 months before he made that announcement. Certainly, they do occur, but there's still a lot of foundational cyber hygiene activities that companies can undertake to protect themselves from a data breach and even more steps that they can take in the actual response to a crisis to mitigate the harms that they may take. I think there's increasing expectation from consumers that it shouldn't take months for them to be notified about a breach. And so how you respond is almost as important as how you prepare and protect against a breach. The social engineering threat remains a big one. For a long time, it was a classic um, W-2 scandal. It'd be from the CEO or the CFO or someone impersonating them, really, to perhaps a junior person in payroll or maybe to the comptroller. Kindly, please send me all of the W-2s in a single PDF. And people would be like, oh my goodness, the CEO emailed me. I have to do this right away. And then they'd fire them off. There's no hacking. This is an email. They hacked the human being. The human being was motivated to respond by the nature of the request. And it's going to take training of personnel to have people hesitate and be like, why is the CEO emailing me? Maybe I should check with my boss. Maybe I should check and see what that email address actually is. Now, is the zero an O? Is the L a number one? Why am I getting this? And I think that requires more sophisticated user training. And phishing attacks are getting more complex, but they continue to be successful and it can lead to compromise of credentials, compromise of data. It's a common pathway for ransomware attacks, which can really devastate an organization. It's interesting. In many ways, there are a number of threat actors that have better customer service than any businesses. Oh, you don't know how to get Bitcoin to pay this ransom? Call this number and someone in your own language will provide you step-by-step guidance to buy Bitcoin, open this wallet, maybe use this to wire it to us. Enabling you to pay the ransom is generally a really smooth customer service experience. And I think people don't realize just how easy it is for the bad guys. And part of cybersecurity is making that cost go up. We can't make it as easy or as profitable for these types of crimes to continue. And so to close on some practical tips for tech companies, you mentioned cyber hygiene. So what are some examples of basic cyber hygiene? And also, what are a lot of companies not understanding about cybersecurity as it pertains to their business operations? I think that there's this myth that cybersecurity as a risk is somehow different from all other types of risk in that it's not something that general business executives and boards need to worry about. I think that's changing, but cybersecurity really should be managed just like any other risk, financial risk, operational risk, and being willing to kind of dig in and ask the tough questions, even if that's not a place of comfort to start, I think really will have a protective benefit for the companies that are willing to engage and dig in. Have access controls. Don't reuse your password on multiple sites. Multi-factor authentication. Have firewalls. Update your definitions. Use antivirus. Don't click on phishing links or open attachments from people you don't know. Use vulnerability scanning. And if you identify vulnerabilities, particularly those that are critical, high, or medium, patch. Have a dedicated patching schedule and plan to address those things. There's plenty of other steps you can take. Encrypting data is a huge one. Full disk encryption on devices, having mobile device management. It's going to vary based on the type of data that you have and also your sophistication as a company. But people just started at the basics of like, when in doubt, change your password and patching saves lives. That would go a long way. 
All right. Thank you for listening to The Leading Edge, produced by one of the most powerful professional community platforms, TechGC. Hope you rate, review, click, subscribe, do it all. We look forward to catching you on the next episode.